Good morning. Am I coming through, John? Okay. This microphone makes me nervous, Bob. You, you handle it very gracefully. I feel strange with this thing hanging from my ear. I, I had to chuckle a little bit listening to Steve this morning. He said, this is the third message in the book of Haggai. And we will not yet be in the book of Haggai until next week. But I hope when we get there, you will see that the time we've spent in these first three sessions have been fruitful in preparing for the discussion of that book. During the first message two weeks ago, I guess three weeks ago, we looked at the connection between God's covenant promises to the nation of Israel and her history through the Old Testament. Last week, we traced God's temple through time, exploring the purpose for the temple and the theology of the temple. What I want to do this morning is to narrow our focus to two particular points in history associated with Solomon's temple and ultimately with the second temple, the temple that would be built as is recorded in the book of Haggai. The time of the dedication of Solomon's temple, the time of the desolation of Solomon's temple, and Daniel's plea that it would be replaced. Now, my purpose in focusing our attention on these events is to allow us to examine both from God's viewpoint and from the viewpoint of two believing Israelites the importance of God's temple. In the process of our study, we'll discover some precious truths regarding God's priorities and how his priorities should shape our priorities. Now, we're going to focus on three passages. Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, God's response to that prayer of dedication in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 that Jonathan just read for us. Now, essentially, we're going to be listening in on three conversations. Solomon speaking to God, God speaking to Solomon, and Daniel speaking to God. Each one of these conversations is different. Each one is, in a way, prophetic. And each one will contribute to our understanding of the events and the text of Haggai, to which we will turn next week. Please join me in prayer. Father, as Jonathan prayed, we ask that your spirit would be at work this morning to make our minds sharp, to make your word clear, and to impact us that we may be changed by our encounter with your word and by coming to know your ways better. We pray this with thanks through your son. Amen. Well, if you will, turn with me to 2 Chronicles. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Now, as you turn, let's consider the setting. King David had received detailed plans for the construction of Solomon's temple direct from the Holy Spirit, as we read a couple of weeks ago. He had gathered enormous quantities of gold, silver, iron, stone, wood, 
all kinds of precious materials, and he'd stored all of these up for Solomon. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, tells us that Solomon began constructing the temple in the fourth year of his reign. That was the year 967 B.C. According to, to 1 Kings chapter 6, and again, you don't need to turn there, he finished the construction of the temple seven years later in the year 960 B.C. Now, in chapter 5 of Second Chronicles, we could read, if we had time, of the day in which the ark was brought and placed into the newly constructed temple. I want you to try to picture the scene in your mind as I paint it for you in words. It's broad daylight. The people of Israel are gathered in great numbers around the new temple. They've followed the procession of the Levites as they carried the ark up from its temporary tent in the city of David. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 6, the priests have been sacrificing sheep and oxen at a frantic pace. The smell of roasting meat fills the air. The people are anticipating with joy the feast that they will soon share together. And the priests gently and reverently place the ark of God in the innermost sanctuary of the new temple. The Levites begin to sing and to play their instruments in praise of God. Now listen as I read to you from 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instru instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Picture that scene in your mind. Just as the music and the singing come together in a moment of sublime and perfect harmony. It's a harmony not just of sound, but of the hearts of the worshipers and of God himself. God's glory fills the temple. A light so bright that it eclipses even the sunshine that is shining on that day fills the temple. And the priests have to scurry outside because of its brilliance. The silent but blinding miracle of the appearance of God's glory shouts out a message to everyone who is present. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, is pleased with his new house. Solomon makes a few comments to the assembled people in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and then he turns to God in prayer. Now, Solomon's prayer is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, in verses 14 through 42. He starts out by recalling God's faithfulness to his promise to David, 
namely the promise that David's son would build the temple. And then we come to the heart of Solomon's prayer in verses 18 through 21. Listen as I read them. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant prays toward this place. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place in heaven, and when you hear, forgive. Now we have both a key statement made by Solomon and the single fundamental request of his prayer. Let's look at each one. The key statement is this. God does not dwell in a man-made temple, not even in the temple that he himself designed and commissioned. However, God chose to sanctify that temple and the place upon which it stood as the focal point for the prayers of his people Israel. Now, the fundamental request that Solomon makes is this. Please keep your eyes open and your ears attentive to prayers that are offered toward this temple. You may have noticed that Solomon speaks of three groups of people when he makes this request regarding prayer toward the temple. In a nutshell, he says, O God of Israel, watch for and hear my prayers, the prayers of future kings of Israel, and the prayers of your people in Israel when we pray toward this place. He's looking forward to the need of God's people through the history that will follow. Now, we need to notice one particular thing regarding the fundamental request that Solomon makes in his prayer. Take a look at verse 21. He says, in effect, to God, when we make supplications toward this temple, please hear and forgive. Not every prayer that the kings or the people of Israel would make toward this temple would be a request for God's forgiveness. But personally, I believe that the most urgent requests that they would ever make would be requests for his forgiveness. And if you were to take the time now to read through the rest of the prayer, please don't do it because I'll lose your attention. You would discover that over and over again, Solomon says, when this happens and we pray, forgive. Now stop for a moment and think about this. We pray to God for all kinds of things. We ask for his blessing, for his help, for his provision, for his glory, for his mercy, and for his forgiveness. Of all those kinds of requests, which is always the most urgent? I think it's the request for his forgiveness. Because without God's forgiveness, nothing else matters. 
You know, if you've never received God's eternal forgiveness, if you remain under his wrath, if your destiny after you die, as far as anything that has happened yet in your life, is his condemnation and eternal hell, nothing else matters until you receive his forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have received God's eternal forgiveness, but you're walking in sin, nothing else really matters until you confess that sin and are restored to fellowship with God and receive his temporal forgiveness. You see, I'm convinced of all the things that we could seek from God in prayer, there's probably nothing that we ever need so urgently as his forgiveness. And we see that in Solomon's request toward God regarding the temple. Now, God makes an immediate response to Solomon's prayer. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now, this is a second miracle. We'd seen the glory of God in the temple before, but this time, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices on the altar. Now, this was an astonishing and impressive miracle. I, I try to picture this in my head, and I see the people going, and it's as if their breath is taken away and they don't know what to say. This is a high moment for Solomon and his people. Obviously, God was greatly pleased with Solomon's prayer. But that was not the end of the conversation between Solomon and God. Now, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, the celebration that began on that day lasted for eight days. When those days of celebration ended, verse 10 tells us that Solomon, let me read it, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the goodness that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. Night comes, and that night God made a special appearance to Solomon. His words to Solomon are recorded for us here in chapter 7 in verses 13 through 22. In those words, God gives Solomon two things, a promise and a warning. Let's look at each one of them briefly. Now, the promise is found in verses 12 through 16, and the heart of the promise is found in verses 13 and 14. Listen as I read these. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Now, you've heard those words taken out of context many times, but think of them in the context of what we've studied for the last few weeks. God had said that if you walk unfaithful to, unfaithfully before me, I will send drought, I will send pestilence, I will send plague, I will send locusts, I will send foreigners in to harass you. And God says, if I do any of those things, if you will turn back to me and humble yourselves and repent and seek my forgiveness, then I will hear from heaven and heal your land. With these words of promise, God essentially says to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and I will do as you ask. But God doesn't stop there. He also gives Solomon a warning. Listen to verses 17 through 22. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall never fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all nations. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this, done thus to his land and to his house? And they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity upon them. Now, after the spiritual victories that Solomon has experienced, after the delight of seeing the temple finished, after the miracle of seeing the Shekinah glory of God fill the temple and the fire fall from heaven and eight days of celebration, this must have felt like an unexpected bucket of ice water in his face. But God knew that Solomon needed this warning. And unfortunately, as you know, he didn't take it to heart. We know what happened later, don't we? Solomon would turn away from God, and the people of Israel would eventually follow him. God would cast his people out of their land and cause his city and his temple to be destroyed. There are three things that I see that we need to observe here in God's warning to Solomon. Now, the first one is this. The warning that God is giving to Solomon here is not a new warning. In the Palestinian covenant given about 500 years earlier, God had warned the nation that sin would lead to expulsion from the land that was theirs by eternal deed. In the Davidic covenant given to King David, Solomon's father, 
God had told David that if his son should turn away from him, then God would punish him. The warning that God gave to Solomon on this night was not a new warning. Now, the second thing I think we need to notice is that it is, it is at Solomon's feet that God places the blame for the calamities that would come on the nation later. Look back at what he says. He says, if you turn away, then I will uproot them from the land. Did you catch that? The you and the them? Leaders. I'm talking to elders, deacons, parents, youth leaders, those of you who will be working in the camp and the VBS, older brothers and sisters, anybody here who leads somebody else. We need to take this to heart because I think there's a principle here that has general application, and this is the principle. The sins of leaders often become the sins of followers. And the followers, as well as the leaders, suffer the consequences. Now, the last thing that I think that we need to see from the warning that God gives to Solomon is that God's purposes in judging Israel extend beyond them to the Gentiles. Israel's God was and still is not just the God of Israel. He's the God over the nations, too. And ultimately, he intends to make himself known to all of mankind, whether it's through judgment, as in the case of the events that would befall Israel and her temple and her city, or through mercy, as in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to keep in mind that part of God's purpose in judging Israel was to make himself known to the rest of the world. Well, the days of dedication pass. Solomon receives his nighttime visit from the Lord. The temple stands glistening in the sun. Foreigners come to visit. They marvel at the temple. They marvel at Solomon's wealth. They marvel at his wisdom. More time passes. Solomon becomes more powerful and more famous, and he begins to take many wives. Those wives draw him into idolatry. Solomon dies. The kingdom splits. And the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, begin the long, slow slide into idolatry and sin, failing to listen to God's warnings. 722 BC comes, 722 BC, yes, comes, and the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. 586 BC comes, and the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom, destroying Jerusalem and the temple. Jerusalem now lies in ruins. Solomon's glorious temple, that temple in which billions of dollars of gold and silver and other wealth had once been invested, is now nothing but a pile of ashes, charred timbers, 
and rubble. The people of Israel and Judah find themselves cast out of their land, living under the domination of the pagan Babylonians. The warnings of the Palestinian covenant and the warnings that God had given to Solomon have now become painful realities. But history is about to take another turn, and when it does, God will turn his attention back to his people. So turn forward in your Bibles now to the book of Daniel. Let me give you a little background. Daniel had been brought to Babylon in 605 BC, the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came in and exerted his authority over the people of Judah. He was a teenager then. When we come to Daniel chapter 5, a story that many of you know, the story of Belshazzar's feast, we are down to early in the year 539. Daniel is now in his 80s. The tide of history, ruled by the hand of God, begins to turn in favor of God's people. Belshazzar is the ruler of Babylon. He decides to hold a drunken party in his palace. Now, the purpose of this party is to celebrate his utter confidence in his own power. You see, outside the walls of Babylon, Babylon was a huge city. Outside the walls of Babylon, the armies of the Medes and the Persians are encamped. They intend to conquer the city of Babylon by siege. But the Babylonians know that the Medes and the Persians don't have a chance. The wall of Babylon is so tall and so thick that no one can get over it and no one can get through it. That wall was so big that it had a two-lane highway on the top of it and they used to hold chariot races up there for fun. The storehouses of Babylon are so large and they're so full and its water supply is so plenteous that the Babylonians know that they could withstand a siege of 50 years if they had to. No attacking army could keep up a siege for that long. And Belshazzar is so confident that he decides to hold a party in his palace to celebrate his security. And so he calls out to his servants, bring me the gold and silver vessels that we captured from the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. The vessels are brought, they're filled with wine, and Belshazzar and his guests raise a toast to their gods. The God of Israel, the God they thought they had defeated in 586 B.C., now responds to their folly. A disembodied hand appears, and it scribbles a message on the wall. Daniel is called in to interpret it. And this is what he says. He says, King, God has weighed you in his balance, and you come up short. Your kingdom has been divided. This very night, the Medes and the Persians will conquer this city that you believe 
is unconquerable. Well, the Babylonians were right. No army could break through their wall. No army could climb over it. No army could starve them out. But that didn't stop God. Just as he had predicted, Babylon fell that night without a battle. The soldiers of the Medes and the Persians diverted the river that ran under the wall and through the city of Babylon, and they came under the wall and captured the city without firing a shot. The flag of the Babylonians came down. The flag of the Medes and the Persians went up on that wall. And the God of Israel had begun to fulfill his promise to restore his people after their time of punishment. Again, the year is 539 B.C., early in the year 539 B.C. And Daniel looks at the events that are transpiring, and he says, God is at work. Now turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Here in Daniel chapter 9, we have a record of a conversation again. We have Daniel's prayer to God in verses 1 through 19, and God's response to Daniel in verses 20 through 27. Now our concern today is with Daniel's prayer that Jonathan read for us. The record of this prayer that we are given tells us why Daniel prays, how he prays, and what he prays for. Let's look at each one of these. The why is recorded in verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Israel. He says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, why did Daniel pray at this time? He prayed because the Medes and the Persians had just conquered Babylon and because he had come to understand Jeremiah's prediction that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, let's consider that prediction by turning to Jeremiah chapter 25. Turn to Jeremiah Chapter 25. Let me read for you verses 11 and 12. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Now turn just a few chapters later to Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 13. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you 
and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now, remember, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem when he recorded this prophecy, and he was there before Jerusalem fell. Now, do these words sound familiar? For I know the words that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. The predictions that we have just made were made by Jeremiah sometime before 586 B.C. And the last one that we just looked at was written in a letter that he sent to captives who were already in Babylon before 586. Among those captives was Daniel. Time passes. We come down to 539. The Medes and the Persians take over the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel looks again at these prophecies. He looks at his calendar. He says, I've been here a long time. And I think his thinking goes something like this. Hmm. Nebuchadnezzar brought us to Babylon in 605 B.C. It's 539. The 70 years will soon be over. It is time to pray. And so he does. Now, how did Daniel pray? Take a look again at verse 3, back in Daniel chapter 9. We see the how there. He says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make repentance by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. It reminds me of what happened back in Daniel chapter 6. Go back to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. I love this verse. This is when Daniel was accused in the accusation that would lead him going to the lion's den. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the... The writing was signed. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. By the way, when you open your windows, people know that you've done it, don't they? With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God, as was his custom since early days. Notice what he does. He prays publicly But even more importantly, he opens his windows and he prays toward Jerusalem. He's thinking back to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. He's remembering the words of Solomon's dedication in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. When they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and they repent and they make supplication to you in the land of their captivity saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been carried captive and get this, and pray toward the land which you gave their fathers, toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name. 
Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. That's exactly what Daniel does. He prays toward Jerusalem. He humbles himself. He doesn't say, your people Israel all around me have sinned. He identifies with them. He says, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. You, God, have been faithful to do what you said you would do. Daniel acknowledges that what has befallen his people is not the mere fortunes of war or the natural course of human events. It is God faithfully judging his people according to what he said he would do. Well, that's the how. I'm sorry, the why and the how of Daniel's prayer. Now we come to the what. What did he pray for? What did he request? Look at verses 16 through 19. Daniel says, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake... Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, the what of Daniel's prayer can be summed up in one idea. Please act to restore your reputation and your name. Daniel then specifies how God should restore his reputation and his name by restoring his temple, by restoring his people, and by restoring his city. Now here you begin to see the payoff of what we did in the last two weeks. Our study last week demonstrated just how important God's temple is to him. Notice that the first specific request that Daniel makes in verse 17 is that God would restore his sanctuary. The history that we studied two weeks ago showed us God's priorities in responding to Daniel's prayer. And right now, John, would you bring up that slide? Think of the sequence of events that we saw on that timeline. It'll be here in a moment. And think of the three years, 538 B.C., 458 B.C., and 444. Okay, we'll be there in a moment. I'm going to get ahead and we'll catch up with the slide. 538 B.C., what was so special about 538 B.C.? 
538 BC followed 539. 539 began with the Medes and the Persians conquering the Babylonians. And later that year, as we read in the last couple of weeks, Cyrus made a decree. And he said, to all the Jews who are in my empire, you are welcome to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple of your God. That's 538 B.C. What did God go for first? The restoration of his temple. Then we come to the year 458 B.C. Sorry, I keep looking back. What happens in 458? Well, in 458, God raises up the man Ezra. Ezra, there we are. Give me two more. There we go. One more. Perfect. Stop there. In 458, God raises up Ezra. Ezra is a Jew living in Babylon. He is zealous for the law of God, and he's burdened because he hears that God's people in Jerusalem are not living godly lives. In Ezra 7.10, some of you have memorized this verse. This is what is recorded. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So Ezra travels from Babylon to Jerusalem. He calls the people to repent, to learn the Lord's law and obey it. And we see that God responded to Daniel's prayer. Secondly, by working to restore his people. First was the temple. Second was his people. And then we come to the year 444. What happens in that year? In that year, God raises up Nehemiah, a man who is zealous for the security of Jerusalem and her people. Nehemiah hears a report. This is recorded in the first chapter of his book. You don't need to turn there. He hears a report of the condition of Jerusalem. This is the report. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now remember, Jerusalem has been inhabited for almost a century now. It's almost a hundred years since the first group went back to rebuild the temple. But the walls are still perforated from when the Babylonians destroyed the city in 586 and the gates are still burned down and the people have no protection. They stand defenseless. Nehemiah journeys to Jerusalem and under the blessing and protection of God, he and the people who live there in the space of 52 days succeed in closing the gaps in the wall and rehanging the gates of the city. What do we see here? We see that God responded to Daniel's prayer lastly by providing physical protection for his people. Now, I want to suggest to you that the sequence of actions that God makes here in response to Daniel's prayer tells us something about God's priorities. What do we see in that sequence? It seems that God's first priority is access to himself through the temple. His second priority seems to be the spiritual cleansing of his people. 
And only thirdly is the physical protection of his people. I think Daniel understood those priorities when he prayed according to them in his prayer. And personally, I think God demonstrated those priorities in the sequence of the events that he caused to be carried out. The temple, the people, and the city. Now, I want to conclude by considering the significance of those priorities in Israel's walk with God and in our walk with God. Let me ask you a question. What got Israel into trouble with God in the first place? Wasn't it wrong priorities? Think about that. God had said to them in the Palestinian covenant in particular, put your relationship with me first and I will take care of everything else. But the Israelites didn't listen. In various ways, they put God second or third or at the bottom of their list of priorities. Some of them followed false gods. They thought Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech, that's the God I need to please. That God will give me abundant crops or make my wife more fertile or send the rain when I need it. I need to please that God. That's the one I'm going to put first. Other Israelites simply allowed the cares of the world to displace God. Some of them never took him seriously in the first place. Failing to put God first cut the nation off from God's blessings. Putting other gods first brought God's curses down upon them, according to the predictions of the covenants. And now I ask you this. What got Israel, at least those who returned to Jerusalem when Cyrus made his decree, what got them back on the right track with God? Wasn't it getting their priorities right? Daniel recognized those priorities in his prayer. Those who returned to the land in 538 recognized those priorities. And they set out to build the temple. Now what we will see next week is that although they got started, they soon stopped. Their priorities shifted again. They started worrying about where their next meal was going to come from and how nice their houses should look, and they stopped working on the temple. And God had to send Haggai in to get them going again. But I do think that what we see is when they return to proper priorities, God returned to blessing them. Now, I want to finish by suggesting to you that there is a general principle that we can learn here. If you want God's blessing, make his priorities your priorities. It's that simple. If you want God's blessing, make his priorities your priorities. I think we can see this priority at work in the history of Israel. And I still think it's valid today, although I would say, and many of you have heard me say this before, we do not live under the same arrangement where God says, if you're faithful to me spiritually, I will bless you physically and financially and biologically and politically. We don't live under that exact kind of a covenant, but I still believe that when we make God's priorities our priorities, 
God will respond in blessing us. Now, some of you are already jumping in your heads and saying, yeah, I know where it says that in the New Testament. Your homework, if you want to take some, is to go home and try to find some places in the New Testament where God expresses that principle. Make my priorities your priorities, and I will bless you. I'll bet you can find it if you look for it. Let's pray together. Father, it is very, very easy for us to look at our immediate needs and to say, you know what, if I just work a little harder, if I just arrange this, if I just figure that thing out, I can take care of my needs. That's not necessarily wrong, Father, but it's always wrong if it means either neglecting you or denying the fact that everything we need comes from you. Father, help us to learn the lesson that Israel had to learn so painfully, that putting you first is the most important thing that we can ever do, and that when we do that, you will take care of the rest. Please dismiss us with your blessing. Please guard us during the week. Please empower us by your indwelling spirit to walk with you, to glorify you, to honor you, and to remember you in all that we do. We pray this with thanks through your Son. Amen.